Hey, uh, can we just take a moment and why don't we just give a huge round of applause to our band and our creative team for putting all the elements together today. They, we, they work so hard each and every week to, to pull those videos off, and the band was just amazing today. Uh, if you are new to the place, my name is Rory. I have the honor and privilege of hanging out with middle school and high school students. However, that is not my chief duty. My chief duty is hanging out with a couple of uh, kid towners. Uh, here's a picture of one of them. This is my littlest. This is Isaiah. And uh, there he is on a joyride in Big Brother's Power Wheels. Uh, and then this is a picture of my oldest. This is Judah. And uh, this is first day at swimming lessons. And uh, in the Eldridge household, we have just undertaken a, a huge, huge thing. We have entered the potty training phase with Judah. So um, here's a picture of that. This was something my wife texted me, and it read, had a caption that read, potty training like a boss. And, uh, and he's just starting in his little whitey tidies. And you have to imagine, uh, we have entered the potty training phase and we've had a few accidents, uh, more than a few accidents. And so my wife has asked me, she said, hey, hey is this gonna like just happen all the time? And I was like, babe, yes, this is gonna happen for years to come. We have little boys, of course. Now, um, case in point, 20 years ago, I was uh, 10 years old and I was at a soccer camp just about 500 yards away from this building at 60 acres. 20 years ago, when I was 10 years old, there was a fence that divided the soccer fields from the farm, and that fence happened to be an electric fence. Now, uh, during camp, all the little boys thought it would be fun to touch the electric, electric fence, and so we did. We touched the electric fence, and it was fun, but then by the end of the week, um, it got a little bit more uh, aggressive, so to speak. Uh, rather than touching the fence, everybody was trying to pee on the fence. The only problem was no one had the guts to pee on the fence. That was until I showed up on the scene. It was Friday, camp had just ended. Everybody had been daring each other all week to pee on the fence and no one has. So I stand up at the fence just like so many other kids have done, but they didn't do it and now I'm gonna do it and I muster up the courage and I aim and let's just say a lightning bolt struck my stuff. It was, it was horrible. Now. It has been said that people change either because they feel the fire or they see the light. And I can guarantee you that 20 years ago on that day, I felt the fire. And I can also guarantee you I have never peed on another electric fence. <laughs> However, rather than uh, feeling the fire today, I'm hoping that we can see the light on something, something I believe that can actually revolutionize the way that we do church and change the way that we see each other. And so in order to do this, I want to open up to the book of John, chapter 8, and look at verses 2 through 11. If you've been around church for a while, this is a very familiar story. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery, and it goes like this. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say, Jesus? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. 
Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Let's pray. Jesus, we know that your word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can cut between both joint and marrow. So Lord, I pray today that as we open the Bible, we don't actually read it, but rather it reads us. I ask, Lord, that it would read our minds and our hearts and that it would actually come alive in order that we would walk out of this place a changed people. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. So uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but the story that we just read, it has all the appropriate elements for a courtroom drama. Think like NCIS Jerusalem or something like that. Now, it's a story rich with deception, law, judgment, and more. And then also by the end, like any good courtroom drama, there's this unexpected twist. Now, at the core of the story, there are three parties. On one side of the story, it's the story of the accused, the woman caught in adultery, someone who has done something horrible and now feels terrible regret and shame. On the other side of the story, it's the story of the accusers, A group of people who have done something is equally as bad, but they feel no regret or shame at all. In fact, it almost seems as if they're so consumed by the awful moral erosion happening in society that they can't even see the rot in their own soul. But then at the center of this story, it's a story of an advocate, an advocate that every one of us in this room can have. His name is Jesus. But before we jump into him, we first must start with the first party. We need to start with the accused, the woman caught in adultery. Now, you have to imagine that this woman was asking herself, how did I get here? We know from Scripture that she was a married woman. The Old Testament law that is mentioned in this text specifically refers to a married woman. At one time, She had been a young bride with dreams of married life, dreams about having a husband who loved her, dreams about praying and worshiping with him, dreams about having children, raising a family, and carving out a life together. But somehow, things didn't turn out the way that she had planned. She was disappointed in her marriage. Maybe it was her husband, maybe it was her. As is usually the case, it was probably some of both. Somewhere along the line, she met another man. He seemed nice to her. He seemed to notice her. He seemed to want to listen to the things that she had to say. And that is a powerful force in an aching heart. At first, it was really all quite innocent. That's how these things tend to go. Then one day, she crossed a line. Maybe it was a touch that lingered just a little too long. Or maybe it was a shared look that implied some kind of illicit promise. Maybe it was a sharing of a secret that violated her husband's confidence and trust. But one day, she crossed a line. And maybe she didn't even notice it at the time, but the reality was she was playing with fire. When I was 14 years old, my grandfather passed away, and so my dad made his way to his house to start the cleanup process, and he came along his dresser. In his top dresser drawer, there was this old Tupperware container of fireworks, mostly just firecrackers. So he brought it home, and he gave it to me, because what 14-year-old boy doesn't like fireworks, right? 
And so grab the Tupperware container, I head on out to the cul-de-sac and I open it up and I start lighting off firecrackers. And as I'm going through the firecrackers, I notice that at the bottom of this little container, there's this little red smoke bomb. And if you don't know what a smoke bomb is, it's just a little red ball, you light it and then red smoke comes out. The only problem was this was not a smoke bomb. This was a cherry bomb. And uh, if you don't know what a cherry bomb is, it's like half a stick of dynamite. So I had no idea what I was playing with, but I go ahead, I put this little ball on the ground right in front of my huffy basketball hoop. I light it and I begin to walk away. And then all of a sudden, it was like a small scale Scud missile hit my cul-de-sac. It was so loud that my eyes vibrated. And I was so scared that I ran out of there faster than my self-esteem at a Zumba class. It was horrible. <laughs> now, here's the big idea. I had no idea the kind of firepower that I was playing with. And like me, this woman, she was playing with fire and she didn't even realize it. There was a bomb about ready to explode and she didn't even know it. And that's because Satan always prefers to keep those kinds of situations just a little dark, just a little hazy. So we're hardly even aware of what we're choosing, but we choose. And she chose and she crossed a line and then another line, then she crossed a whole bunch of lines until eventually this had become a full-fledged affair. But here's the thing. As long as it was a secret, it was kind of like she was living two different lives in two different worlds. When she was in one world, she could pretend like the other world didn't exist. So she kept herself from thinking about the damage that this was doing to her husband. She kept herself from thinking about what this would do to her children. She kept herself from thinking about the damage that this was doing to her soul. And believe me, this was doing damage. Because here's the thing about sin. Sin is a lot like Taco Bell. It is good for the moment, but it will mess you up later. It is so good for the moment, but it will mess you up later. And that's because sin that goes unchecked, it always leads to more sin. It always does. And this woman, she used to be a truthful person. The first time, the first time that she lied to her husband about where she was going and what she was doing, her heart was beating outside of her chest. She was blushing and she was sure that her husband would find out. The first time she slept with this man, when she went to the synagogue afterwards and heard the scriptures read, she was sure that everyone could see the guilt on her face. And she thought they would find out. She thought God would strike her dead with a lightning bolt right then and there, but nobody found out. There was no lightning. God did nothing. Heaven was silent. And now, now she was able to go to the synagogue and hardly think about her affair at all. She didn't think much about God either. She tried to think about other things when they all prayed. And the truth about her is that she had become a hypocrite. As long as her secret was intact, she hardly thought about those things. Every once in a while, she would wake up in the middle of the night with a cold sweat, but it would usually pass. She doesn't really notice what is happening to her mind and her heart. That is, until this night, the night that everything exploded, the night that everything hit the proverbial fan. She's with this man, a man that she has been with we don't know how many times before. Only this time it happens. The doors open and there have been men outside waiting and watching. Now they come into her room and they seize her. She screams, she cries, she begs for mercy. She would give anything if she could just go back to when she first crossed the line, but she can't because you can never go back. And she would kill herself right then and there if they would let her, but they don't. 
They wrap her up in sheets and they lead her away. And now this vague haze that she has been living in for so long is ripped away and everything is in the light. And as happened at the fall, her eyes are opened and she sees herself naked and she is ashamed. And she wants more than anything else to hide, but there's no place to go. She has been playing with fire and now everything has exploded. And suddenly she realizes how she got here. She chose it. She chose this life. Now, that's not all there is to the story. She was wounded. She was hurt. She had needs that went unmet, but she's not just a victim. She made a thousand little choices that inevitably led to this moment right here. Now, I want to pause in this moment because I know some of you are wrestling with some secret sin as well. Maybe it's this one. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's anger or greed or cheating. Maybe nobody knows about it, not even the person sitting next to you right now, and you've convinced yourself that no one will ever find out, but I need to let you know that you're playing with fire. Maybe you've started crossing lines and you know it, and now it's just a question of how far you're going to go. Some of you here, you're wrestling with an addiction. Maybe it's porn, maybe it's substance, maybe it has to do with food, and you have convinced yourself that no one will ever find out, and I just need to let you know that you are playing with fire. And it is only a matter of time before it all explodes. And you see, it's this sin, often this secret sin, that when you walk into this building and you see people pouring out their hearts in worship to God, that for some reason you can't. It's like the secret sin is holding you back. And so I want to I pause I want to pause and do a little mass confession in this room. And I understand that this can be a little threatening, but I'm going to keep my question really, really broad. But I want all of us to participate. And the question is simply this. How many of you have ever struggled with a bad habit before? Every single one of us in this room. So let me ask you a follow-up question. How many of you have ever wrestled with this bad habit and found that it just spontaneously went away all by itself one day? None of us, right? You see, as a general rule, those habits that get embedded into our bodies, they don't just spontaneously go away. Not only that, when they get to a certain degree of strength, they are deeply embedded into our bodies. And so just deciding by willpower alone to change is not sufficient enough. At that point, you're going to need help. You're going to need an advocate, someone who will stand beside you through the muck and the mess that this life often throws at us. And I have good news for you today. Today, you do have an advocate, an advocate who will not only journey with you through your mess, but an advocate who will also offer you a second chance. But I'm getting ahead of myself because there's another party that we need to address. We need to address the accusers. Now, again, we, we have to picture this setting. It's kind of like a courtroom back in that day. And in verse 2, we're told that Jesus sat down to teach the crowd that had gathered in the temple courts. And there's a reason for this. See, in those days, the way a rabbi signaled that the formal teaching time had begun was actually by sitting down. In our days, usually teachers stand up, just like we're doing now, and everybody else sits. But in that day, the teacher sat down. That way, the teacher could go on talking for hours and hours and hours and never get tired. But the point that the author John is trying to make here is that... This was not a place of private conversation to try to figure out some constructive action in a confidential setting. No, not at all. See, Jesus is teaching in a public setting, and then this group of men, these teachers of law, these accusers, drag this woman in. 
And it seems like they are more than willing to humiliate this woman publicly. And quite frankly, they are. And why? Because it's Jesus they're after. And this woman, this woman is just bait for their trap. She's hardly a person to them. They approach Jesus, teacher, they say, as if they wanted to honor him. Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act. Now, the law was very clear about what, re, what, was, what was required to be caught in the act. Circumstantial evidence did not cut it. One witness was not enough to convict those accused of any crime or offense they had committed. We're told in the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 19, to be exact, that a matter of this magnitude must be established by the testimony of at least two or three or more witnesses. That means at least two or maybe more of these men were hanging out around her house. They were watching her through a window. How long they watch, we don't know. How much they see, we don't know. But we do know there is actually an obligation to help someone stop if you see them about to sin. But these men don't do that. They don't do that. And you notice, too, the other man that she committed adultery with, he's not brought before Jesus, even though the law says that that other man should be stoned as well. You see, this is a classic double standard. This woman was the most vulnerable character in that society, and therefore she is the one most easily used. She is just a prop. She's just an object. They don't care about her. They're just using her. They think to themselves, we have Jesus now. And so if he shows mercy to this woman, they'll we'll get him for being soft on the law. And if he says stone her, the crowds will never forgive her, forgive him. And then on top of this, the Romans, they had forbidden the Jews from executing anybody. We're told about that later in John chapter 18. So if Jesus says stone her, he would be in serious trouble from the Romans. So Jesus is officially caught between a rock and a hard place. And so now here he stands with this woman, this woman trembling with guilt and fear, wishing she could die, believing that she's about to, and they don't even care. They don't care at all. All they can think of is, we have Jesus now. So they stand there, rocks in their hands, having appointed themselves judge and jury, just waiting for the word. Now, before we go on, and before we judge them too quickly, I want to ask us all another question. This is a very important question. How many of you have ever had a stone in your hand? How many of you have ever had a stone in your hand? You see, it's a strange thing that can happen to a heart that was once tender. I wonder if for these teachers of the law, when they first signed up as young men to devote themselves to a life of service to God, if they had hearts that were soft and warm and loving towards God and other people. I wonder if they were motivated by love in the beginning. But then, over time... I wonder if something bad happened. I wonder if something bad happened out of something good. I wonder if all of their learning about the scriptures filled them with pride. I wonder if all their efforts at obedience and diligence and righteousness filled them with disdain for the less devoted. I wonder if all of their giftedness filled them with impatience and then contempt for those who are weaker until one day they were all as enslaved by a cold heart as any addict was by any drug. And so what's so dangerous about judgmentalism and pride and arrogance and moral superiority is that when they get a hold of you, you end up walking through life as if it were a courtroom and you're the jury and you have a stone in your hands, judgmental thoughts, superior attitudes, impatient words, bitter resentments, and little love. Right after I graduated from college, I took a job in Colorado Springs 
I was working for two counselors that produced a radio uh, show together. And from time to time, those counselors would speak at different churches on the weekend. This weekend, we happened to be speaking at a church right in the heart of Colorado Springs, right on the campus of Colorado College at Shove Chapel. And there was a church that was meeting there. It's kind of an old school church, kind of suit and tie thing. And we had gone through all the pre-service stuff, and uh, I made my way out towards the front lawn and was just watching people as they came in. There was an older gentleman standing on the top of the stairs, suit and tie, and he was handing out flyers. Seemed like a nice enough guy. And then I noticed in the parking lot, there was kind of old beat up car that made its way in and out popped a woman. A woman with kind of looked disheveled, crazy hair, looked like maybe it had been a rough night before. And she started to make her way towards the door and then she made her way up the stairs. And then here is this man. And I will never forget what this man said. This man looks in this lady's eyes and she said, young lady, you are not dressed for the house of God. And then in that moment, I can see the tears begin to well up in her eyes. She makes an about face and heads back to her car, hops in her car, and leaves. Now, I've been in church for a long time, and I love church. I love church, and I love this church. But I wonder, why do churches seem to produce so many stone throwers? Why do churches produce so many stone throwers? And I'm talking to myself, myself included on this point. And I think the reason is, is because gathering stones, it energizes us. It energizes us. We look forward to gathering stones. We enjoy passing judgment on the spiritual inferiority of others. Maybe somebody's kids are acting a little weird, so what do we do? We pick up a stone. Maybe, maybe somebody's marriage isn't working, and so what do we do? We, we pick up a stone. Maybe the worship pastor chooses the wrong songs or plays them too loudly, and so what do we do? Even though it might seem a little insignificant, we still, we pick up the stone. Maybe somebody crosses a line or violates a code, dresses the wrong way, has a problem, and then word spreads, and so what do we do? We gather stones. And you need to understand that I really am preaching to myself on this. I do this. I pick up stones. If there's someone that I see that I get a little bit jealous of, maybe somebody who I think has gone a little bit further in life than me, I actually revel in the days when I hear something bad about that person. I love to to pick up stones, and and I do this. And I have to imagine in a room this size, there are lots of other people who do this as well. And if you find yourself like me, stuck in your own pride or maybe your arrogance or maybe your insecurity and you're there and you're holding a rock in your hand, I want you to know that there is good news this morning. The good news is there is an advocate who shows us a better way to live. And this advocate can also give us, the stone throwers, a second chance, a second chance at doing life right. And so who is this advocate? The Bible says, there they stand, these lovers of God, these accusers, and here is this woman, trembling, waiting to die, and her judges with stones in their hands, and then there's this strange man, the man at the center of our story, the man who will not go away, this Jesus, our advocate. And so the teachers of the law, these Pharisees, they ask him, what do you say, Jesus, And he does the most amazing thing. He bends down to the ground and he starts writing in the dust. And this bothers them. This is odd behavior on Jesus' part. But I actually want you to notice a couple things. 
I want you to notice a couple things about the spirit of an advocate, a couple things that Jesus actually models so well, and these are in your handout, and you can write these in. The first one is this. The spirit of an advocate is slow to speak. The spirit of an advocate is slow to speak. The text says that these accusers, they didn't just question Jesus, but they kept on questioning him. You're the rabbi, make the call. What do you say? What should we do? Obey the law? And then for the longest time, Jesus says nothing. That's because the spirit of an advocate is slow to speak. But finally, finally Jesus stands up and he says, go ahead, stone her. That's what the law says, just one rule. Let the guy without sin go first. Now, these are huge words. But before we unpack those, I want to address something else. I want to address something that I think is just as amazing as his words. It's what Jesus does right after he says these words. See, Jesus says these words, and then the Bible says that he kneels back down. And that's because... The spirit of an advocate is not only slow to speak, but it is down in the dirt. The spirit of an advocate is slow to speak, but it is also down in the dirt. You see, even Christ's posture preaches a message. Rather than running away from the mess, we see Jesus run toward it. In other words, Jesus is down in the dirt with this woman, and that is because the spirit of an advocate is down in the dirt. The spirit of an advocate says yes to the mess. And what's more is that Jesus invites all of his followers to embrace this life as well. A life that says, I'm going to be slow to speak about other people. A life that says, I'm going to choose to be down in the dirt with people who are hurting. John 13, 35 says, and these are Jesus' words, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, all, all people, doesn't matter gender, race, creed, whatever, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, this is the life that Jesus calls us to embrace, a life of advocacy. And uh, this Christmas, my parents got my wife and I an Apple TV, and it allows you to peruse a, a few different things. And one of the different things we like to peruse is YouTube. And while we were perusing YouTube, I came across this story that absolutely rocked me the first time I saw it. And I want to show it this morning because I think it paints a picture for us of the spirit of an advocate. So let's watch. If you go to Honolulu from the East Coast, those of you who have been there know that you wake up like at 3 o'clock in the morning and you can't get back to sleep. And um, I'm hungry. And I, I went looking for something to eat. And even at that wee hour of the morning, in a bustling city like Honolulu, you can't find a place that's open. But up a side street, I did find a place. I went in, sat down on the stool. It was a greasy spoon, no booze, just a row of stools in front of the counter. And, and this fat guy with a dirty, filthy, greasy apron came out, pulled his cigar out, put it down, and said, what do you want? I didn't touch the menu. It was one of those plastic menus that 
Grease had piled up on it, and I knew that if I opened it, something extraterrestrial would crawl out. <laughs> and so they like a cup of coffee and a donut. So he poured the coffee, and then he did this. And he picked up the donut. <laughs> I hate that. So I'm sitting there, 3.30 in the morning, drinking my coffee and eating this dirty donut. Into the room come about eight or nine prostitutes, and they sat down on either side of me. And I tried to disappear. And the one on my immediate right said, tomorrow's my birthday, she said to her friend. I'm going to be 39. Her friend said, so what do you want me to do? Sing happy birthday? You want a cake? What, do you, what should we do? Have a party for you? You're going to be 39. First woman said, look, I don't, I'm not expecting anything. I just, why do you have to put me down? And then she said, with a crack in her voice. I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. I don't expect to have one now. That did it. I waited till, you know, till they all left, and I was the only one left. I called Harry over. I said, do they come in here every night? He said, yeah. I said, the one next to me? He said, Agnes. I said, tomorrow's her birthday. What do you say we decorate the place? And when she comes in tomorrow, we have a birthday party for her because I heard her say she's never had a birthday party in her whole life. He said, Mr., that's brilliant. That is brilliant. Jane, he called his wife out of the back room. She did the cooking. He wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. I thought, jeez, this is great. She comes out. She grabs my hand. She says, Mr., you wouldn't understand this because of what she does, you know? But she's one of the kind people in this town. She's one of the caring people in this town. I said, uh, look, can I, can I decorate the place? She said, to your heart's content. I said, I'm going to bring a birthday cake. Harry said, oh, no, the cake's my thing. I thought, oh, jeez, you know, God. <laughs> so I got there the next morning. I got there the next morning at about 2.30. I had bought crepe paper at the Kmart, strung it across the plate, place, made a big sign that said, happy birthday, Agnes, put it on the mirror behind the counter. I had the place spruced. Jane, who got, does the cooking, got the word out on the street so that by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was squeezed into this place. I mean, people, it was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes and me. 3.30 in the morning, the door opens. In comes Agnes and her friends. I got everybody poised, everybody ready. The minute she walks through the door, we yell, Happy birthday, Agnes, and all start cheering like mad. I've never seen anybody so stunned in my life. Her knees buckled. They steadied her and got her and sat her down on a chair. And We started singing, happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday, dear Agnes. And when they brought out the cake, she lost it and started to cry. Harry just stood there with the cake and finally he said, all right, Agnes, knock it off. <laughs> blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. She tried and she couldn't, so he blew out the candles and handed her the knife and said, now cut the cake, come on now, cut the cake. She sat there for a long moment, and then she said to me, is it all right if I don't cut the cake? She said, what I'd really like to do is take the cake home and show it to my mother. I said, it's your cake. She stood up. I said, do you have to do it now? She said, I live two doors down. Let me take the cake home. I'll bring it right back. I promise. She picked up the cake. She pushed through the crowd and out the door. 
and as the door swung slowly shut, dead silence. The whole group was stunned. I didn't know what to say. Finally, after a few uneasy moments, I said, what do you say we pray? It's weird looking back on it now. <laughs> a sociologist leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning in a diner in Honolulu was the right thing to do, and I prayed that God would deliver her from what dirty, filthy men had done to her, usually starting like it, you know, when they're about 12 or 13, and, and then they're ruined and hurt. And when I finished praying that God would make her new, that God would give her back everything that had been taken from her. I said amen and lifted my eyes, and Harry was right in my face. He said, hey, Camp Paulo, you told me you were a sociologist. You're no sociologist. You're a preacher. What kind of church you belong to? And one of those moments when you come up with just the right words, I said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. I thought that was a clever answer. <laughs> I'll never forget his response. He looked back and he said, No, you don't. No, you don't. He said, I would join a church like that. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all join a church that threw birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning? I got news for you. That is the kind of church that Jesus came to create. He came to create a church that was filled with people that move out into the world and bring celebration and joy into the lives of those who have nothing to celebrate and have no joy, to bring celebration to those who are brokenhearted and beaten down, to lift them up and give them some joy in their life. That's what you are called to do. You are called to be agents of God, to spread His love and His joy into a loveless and joyless world. That's what you're called to do. And if you surrender to Christ and let Him cleanse you and let the Spirit fill within you, His Spirit will constrain you, says Scripture, constrain you, drive you to do loving and joyful things in a world devoid of joy and love. Do you hear me? John 13, 35 says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There is only one thing that is wrong with that verse, and the one thing that could be wrong with that verse is if we allow that verse to stick up here and never get out here. There's a little equation that I put in your handout that I hope will transform the way that we do church and the way that we love people and actually bless our city. And it's like this. Information plus application equals transformation. The only problem is too often we stick in this information zone. We let it get into our head, but it never hits our heart and then it never comes out in our actions. We need to begin applying God's word to our life. And if we will, we will see our city transformed. We will bless our city. We ourselves will become advocates as Christ is an advocate for us. See, this is the life that Christ calls us into. The scripture continues to say, 
that Jesus starts writing in the dust again. The big question is, well, what is he writing? Some scholars think he's writing the Ten Commandments. Others think that he's writing a list of sins of those men in that little circle right around him. The truth of the matter is the author John doesn't let us know. However, what we do know is that Jesus confronted those men in in that circle, those accusers of the truth about themselves. He says, go ahead, throw stones if you want, pass judgment, condemn her, guys, your call. Just make sure that you are sinless yourself. Just make sure that you remember that sinful, fallen people are really in no position to throw stones. Because when sinful people start passing judgment, they end up passing judgment on themselves before a sinless and holy God. You see, they could see her sin, but they could not see their own. And yet suddenly with the words of Jesus, the truth about them was revealed. They are not who they thought they were. They are not champions for God. They are not fighters for morality. They are a cold-hearted, arrogant little circle of stone throwers. So the question I now want to ask is for every one of us in here. Is there any one of us in here that needs to drop a stone? Is there anybody in here, you've been holding stones, maybe against a spouse, maybe against a friend, maybe against a coworker. In fact, maybe you don't even remember life without these stones. I'm just asking today, is there anybody in here who needs to let go of some stones? And maybe you've been living with these things for so long that you, you can't remember life without it. But you can walk out of here today. In fact, this could be your moment that you let go of the stone. In fact, if there is just one thing that you take away from this message this morning, I pray that it's this. This is our big idea. I pray that you would drop the rock. I pray that you would drop the rock. See, there is no room in Jesus' community for stone throwers. We are all too broken. We need each other if we are to be a church and a family and not a courtroom. So drop the rock and embrace a life of advocacy, believing the best in people and not the worst, being slow to speak, getting down in the dirt and understanding that life transformation happens not from giving somebody some information, but actually applying the word of God to our own lives. That's the big idea, friends. Now, I know that this point mainly speaks to the accusers. And my guess is that 95, 99% of us in this room, we have all had rocks in our hand, if not 100%. We can all identify with that. But the truth is there's another audience in here. And you are the audience that was probably stirred the first half of the message when we were talking about the woman who was accused. The story continues to say, that Jesus says these words to the accusers and then one by one, they drop their stones until it's just Jesus and this woman standing there in the midst. And Jesus looks to this woman and he says, does anybody condemn you? And she says, no one, sir. And then he says back, well, then I don't condemn you either. Now go and leave your life of sin. Most scholars believe that this was the beginning of a faith journey for this woman. It didn't happen through information. It happened through showing love 
extending grace, being an advocate, being someone who was slow to speak, who was down in the dirt with this woman. And that is the life that Jesus asks us to embrace. But if you are in this room and you feel like this woman, you feel like there is just sin in your life and you are being held back, I want you to know that there is good news for you. There is an advocate who is here in this place right now and he desires to give you a second chance. In fact, this advocate went to a cross and he stapled himself on a wooden beams and he bled and he died in order that he could pay for all of the sin, all of the wrongdoing that you have ever done or will ever do and he did it so that he could give you a second chance. Second chance at life, real life. And if you will acknowledge that today, you will walk out of here a changed person and God's grace will be all over your life. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. This woman, she acknowledged God, but that doesn't mean that she didn't have to go back and talk to her husband and her children. It was still a rough patch, but what she did know is that she didn't go alone anymore. She had an advocate who was walking alongside her in her mess and she would never be alone again. So this message is really twofold. It's for those of you who feel like you're the accused and you have messed up and you've made a mistake. I want you to know there is a second chance and that second chance comes through Jesus Christ. And then the other party is those accusers, those of us who have held the rock and been ready to go in for the kill shot. I want you to know that you have a second chance as well. Jesus offers that to you and he shows us the way. So on your way in, you received a handout. And I began this message by saying that change happens because you either feel the fire or you see the light. And this morning, I am praying that we see the light on something. On the back of your connection card, there are just three items. The first one says, I received Jesus Christ and his love for the first time today. If you are in this place and you felt like the accused, I want you to know that if you acknowledge Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for you, you can check that box. And I believe that he has saved you and now you need to get plugged in and get some advocates alongside of you who will help you in this journey with Jesus. Number two, if you recommit your life to Christ, again, you've let sin take over your life. I want you to know that you can get, give your life to Jesus. He will give you a second chance. But then number three, this is for all of us accusers today. All of us in here who've had rocks in our hands, You can drop the rock today, and I would encourage you, if that's you, please check that box on this connection card. Drop it in the offering buckets as they come in just a moment. But the goal of our gathering this morning is that we change. Every time we come together, come together, it's that we come together in order that God can move in our hearts and that we change so that we're different when we walk out of the four walls of this building. And so if that has happened today, would you please let us know on that connection card? We want to pray for you. We want to come alongside you. All this said, let me pray and the offering buckets will come in just a moment. Jesus, Lord, I thank you for this time that we can gather together as an entire church family where we can hear from your word and Lord, have it cut us to the heart in order that we would listen to your spirit and then apply it to our lives. Lord, help us to become people who would drop our rocks and embrace a life of advocacy. And for those of us in here who have never responded to the good news of your advocacy for us, Lord, on the cross for our sins, Lord, would we respond to that? Would your spirit move in this place? Jesus, we love you and we thank you for this time. And everybody said, amen.